Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The bloodbath in emerging markets uh, currencies has continued today. You can look at the uh, MSCI EMFX index, and it is uh, continuing its uh, onward decline for a fifth day. Here to talk about uh, this this rapid fall of one of the darlings of this year is Jeffrey Dennis. He is head of global emerging market strategy for UBS Securities. So, Jeff, just weigh in here. I mean, why are we seeing such severe declines kind of escalate in the way that they are right now? First of all, I think we have to keep all this in perspective because actually some of the weaker brethren, if you like, within the emerging markets that have um, uh, that are under pressure, Brazil, Turkey, um, India, um, uh, Indonesia, to a certain extent, Mexico, um, they're coming off for sure. But um, some of the better quality emerging markets by, you know, in terms of fundamentals like China and Korea and Taiwan, I hardly seeing any I've not seen any currency decline at all to speak of. So this is a somewhat isolated, somewhat localized, but it's happening because the dollar itself is rising, and that in turn has got quite a lot to do with the anticipation of more Fed hikes and also um, the rise, of course, in 10-year bond yields um, above 3%. But our view is this is all happening because of global financial markets, in other words, not because of anything going wrong within the emerging markets themselves. All right. So, Jeffrey Dennis, having said that, and maybe it is uh, maybe a time worn but but really inaccurate way to look at investments by saying, all right, we're going to look at this geographically and we're looking at emerging markets. So we look country by country when you've got companies that are doing business probably not in only in their home country, but in other uh, emerging markets. Are there yep. specific companies that you would point investors to and say, look, this is a great company that you want to own for a long period of time, and here's an opportunity to buy in when other people are too afraid. Well, I'm not going to talk about specific companies, but the way I would try to answer that is is the following, and that is the the danger sign will be to what extent these currency declines in certain markets, as I say, and the rise in inflation, which is partly coming through because of higher oil prices, does that at some point um, cause the fundamental story within the emerging markets to deteriorate? Does it lead to countries having to raise interest rates aggressively? Does it mean that growth will slow down in some of these countries because they have to react to a weaker currency and higher inflation? That is when you would see more of a risk coming through to the asset class. If you got, in other words, the this uh, contained, in my view, currency weakness, um, does it start to contaminate the fundamentals? And we're and we're not frankly really seeing that at this point. We've had a rate rise in Indonesia, to be fair, but yeah. at this stage, we think that the basically the growth story in the global economy and the growth story in emerging markets is therefore intact. And so, one logical way to answer your question would be would be to look at export stocks that are that are coming out of these countries with much weaker currencies because they will get some benefit because the currencies are cheaper. And elsewhere in parts of the world where things look more stable, 
where you're not seeing much decline in currencies whatsoever, you, what you're going to find then is some of the domestic stocks will do well. Um, and in particular, we have a big overweight in financials in emerging markets, and that's an area we would be looking at. So have you gotten a lot of calls from nervous clients recently? We've had a lot of inquiries from nervous clients, for sure. And I think um, it's inevitable when you get this this amount of selling um, of certain currencies, including, as you said in your intro, some of the darlings of, I think, last year rather than this year, such as Brazil. There is there is a great concern about this. But at the, at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, the funds flow story is still pretty strong into the emerging markets. We haven't seen much of the way of outflows. Now, of course, that could happen, you know, yeah. on the back of all of this. But we... We, we think generally investors are going to stay relatively calm. And uh, on our view of a weaker dollar and lower bond yield second half of the year, I think this will prove to be a very nice buying opportunity on a sort of six to nine month view. So that's where I was going to go with this, because you said, you know, this isn't some, something fundamental in emerging markets. It's something more of a market driven kind of issue. Yeah, yeah. But you could argue that it was sort of a market driven issue that there was such a flood of cash going into emerging markets earlier through index funds. Um, so, you know, what's to say that it won't accelerate? To your point, you're not seeing that yet. But how closely are you watching those sort of uh, passive, passive funding? We are funds? certainly watching watching that without any question. And one and one argument people could make for being having a more negative view going forward is the fact that EM equity funds about $53 billion of, of money coming in so far this year, which is essentially a record for this time of the year. We haven't seen any significant, we've seen a slowdown in those flows, but no real outflows. Were that to happen, obviously that would, um, you know, that that would be a concern. And But from a, uh, from a fundamental point of view, if we're all still alive by the time we get there, you know, our, our highest view here is that the pressure on bond yields and the pressure on the upward pressure on the dollar will fade in the second half of the year as it, as inflation in the U.S. kind of rolls over and is not seen to be the threat perhaps it is at the moment. And if the dollar were to go sharply lower second half of the year, which is our view, and bond yields come back a bit, I think that money's, money's going to come back. And, and therefore, we are in the middle of a bit of a nasty storm here, and it may well go on for a few more weeks, but I don't think it's going to lead to a major bear market in emerging market equities at this stage. Thank you very much. Jeffrey Dennis is head of global emerging market strategy for UBS Securities. He's based in Boston, of course, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport in 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. And he was talking about the dollar. Italy could soon have a radical coalition government led by the anti-establishment Five Star Movement and the Far Right League. Here to tell us more about Italy and uh, its, uh, well, the economy and the reaction to fin financial markets to the uh, perhaps forming of a new government is uh, Fernando Giuliano. He is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion based in Rome. Uh, Ferdinando, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, bring us up to date on uh, who are the various parties that may come together to form a real government and what is their platform or at least what's their platform today? So we have two government, two parties which did not run together in the election. Let's recall that. So that's why they had to sit down and negotiate a new program. On the one hand, we have the Five Star Movement, which is a anti-establishment party which rose to power very quickly over the last few years 
which was set up initially by the comedian Beppe Grillo and has been a little bit of a catch-all party, really uh, grabbing votes from left and right. And on the other hand, we have the League, uh, which is a hard-right party, uh, which in the past was taking positions to have the North um, basically, sep- you know, to separate the Italy in, into a North and South, but now it's taken more Eurosceptic uh, views. The two of them have now combined into this uh, turbocharged populist government, uh, which has just produced its coalition agreement. It's a list of uh, spending commitments which total more than 100 billion euros yeah. and include some uh, uh, radical ideas, for example, a steep cut in income taxes, uh, an income support scheme very generous, but which most importantly would set Italy on a collision course with the rest of the Eurozone and the European Union if they were to be enacted. You know, the response has been notable in some of the Italian markets. But in some ways, it's sort of surprising that you haven't seen a greater sell-off in, for example, uh, Italian bonds. I mean, yes, yields are at the highest level since July of last year. But still, I mean, basically, they're they're calling for a blowout of their deficit and they're hoping that the eurozone is going to uh, help fund their lavish promises, which they're not going to do. Well, absolutely. I think the reaction has been uh, uh, there. I mean, we've seen it accelerating over the last uh, couple of days ever since, you know, it became clear that these two parties were serious. Uh, but it's not been as, uh, uh, you know, there could be more to come. I mean, uh, I think the, the mitigating factors here are, first of all, the European Central Bank scheme of quantitative easing, which is still running and will run until the autumn. So there is still a buyer of Italian debt and investors know that in the form of a central bank. And on top of that, we also have this idea that somehow these proposals are non-starters. I mean, they will need to meet the president on Monday to discuss the program. And the president has said he will want to play an active role. And on top of that, you know, many of these ideas will actually need to be implemented. And, you know, there will be some discussions with Eurozone partners who are going to be, you know, quite unsupportive to say the least. So I think there is, you know, there is more to come for sure. Uh, But on the other hand, I think the investors are looking at this, you know, mitigating factors, which may explain why the reaction is still relatively muted. Ferdinando, I mean, just to sort of put this in perspective, I was speaking to one analyst who said basically the market is betting for all intents and purposes that the current government will be completely ineffective and that the technocrats will continue to sort of uh, chart a more logical path forward for the nation. Um, Is that a bankable assumption? Well, I think there are, you know, several issues. First of all, this is a coalition uh, which has been, you know, is completely new. So one possibility is that they will start squabbling once, you know, a reality kicks in. So, you know, what do we prioritize between, say, the flat, you know, this kind of steep income tax reduction, which the league is very keen on, and the income support scheme, which the five star is keen on. So they may start squabbling and so do very little. And then on top of that, you know, there are a number of constraints. For example, the Italian constitution has a clause which says that Italy has to balance the budget over the economic cycle. So there is a possibility that the president may veto some of the you know, craziest spending bills 
because they simply clash with the constitution. So I think there are a number of you know uh, reasons to be relatively uh, sanguine about the prospect, uh, the spending prospect of this government. But for sure, the document we have in front of us is explosive from uh, a, you know a point of view of uh, the public finances. Uh, this is one of the biggest gambles you've seen in a eurozone country. Uh, really since the formation of uh, of the currency union. Fernando, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really interesting insights. I recommend everyone read uh, his columns. Fernando Giuliano is columnist for Bloomberg Opinion coming to us from Rome. And uh, you can find his columns on Bloomberg.com. You can just get a sense of what they are about. Uh, one of the latest, Italy gets a taste of Boris Johnson's cake, uh, talking about how the League and Five Stars Dreamers want the Eurozone to help fund their lavish promises, even though that will break the rules that have already been established. A really interesting issue. And Pam, frankly, I am surprised that we're not seeing a bigger sell-off. Is there some kind of $200 billion trade deficit deal with China? Is there not? Different people saying different things. Here to clear it all up for us is Dan Moss. He's economics editor and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our 1130 studio. So, Dan, uh, what's going on here and who's right? You know, the key is the final clause in the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman's answer to this question. Which is the question? When asked if a $200 billion deal has been hatched, he said, not to blah, 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 comma, to my knowledge. Now, that is absolutely key. It was taken as a denial, but really, it's a non-denial denial. This is important. Just to make sure that people understand the context here, uh, some people were cited uh, anonymously as saying that the U.S. was close to getting China to reduce its trade deficit with the U.S. by $200 billion. Is that per year? That's unclear. But if we assume that it is, and that was the total the administration was looking for, that basically takes care of the bulk of it. So you'd essentially be writing off the trade gap in one stroke of the pen, which is why it seems like a big number. And on the face of it, unlikely. But we live in unlikely times. You know, Dan, I thought you were going to talk about sorghum. Well, that was going to be the you second know, it can, part by the of way, my answer. No, it doesn't contain any gluten. If you just, just so you know, that hey, was really the main question. That, that was we all it, were looking right? To exactly. Hey, my wife has celiac disease. <laughs> so there, there, you there you go. go. Right, That's sorghum is important. Okay, Thank you. so there were really okay. So after this story was published, um, including by Bloomberg last night, New York Times, the focus shifted to Chinese officials in Beijing. Was there a deal for $200 billion? Was there not a deal? The foreign ministry spokesman's statement was taken as a denial. It wasn't really. It was way more nuanced. Remember, to my knowledge, and by the way, the foreign ministry does not have responsibility for trade policy in China. So it's really a non-denial denial. The point that Pim makes is equally critical. When taken with the not to my knowledge, China's suspension of an anti-dumping investigation into U.S. sorghum is a way of saying, yeah, we're playing ball here. We're playing ball here. This doesn't have to be a confrontational thing. So while no one from China came out in Beijing overnight and said, yeah, $200 billion done, there were signals that were headed toward 
Some kind of something. Right. What is that? Some kind of something. That is the technical term for it. Dan, can you just put into perspective, zooming out, the significance of reducing the trade deficit by $200 billion? Is that feasible? I mean, just explain. uh, This is sort of uh, the number that people put out there for how much uh, basically we give to China. It's not that simple. Explain here. Okay. Is it feasible? Sure, it's feasible. Is it plausible as a sustainable thing? Yeah, well, that's a whole separate question. Look, how could you wipe $200 billion off? And let's say for argument's sake, the US trade deficit with China is about $350 billion. Okay. Meaning that we pay for, we import $350 billion more from China than they import from us. Correct. That's a ballpark figure. Okay. So look, if Chinese airlines, most of which are controlled by the state, stopped buying Airbus and started using that cash to buy Boeing. They imported a whole lot more U.S. agriculture. You could get within cooey, within shouting distance of $200 But is it really realistic to assume they're not going to buy any more Airbuses, for example, and that the U.S. is the only source for agricultural and oil now that the U.S. is an oil exporter? There's that as well. The important thing to remember, which gets lost in a lot of this, is a large chunk of what the US quote unquote buys from China is stuff that's assembled in China by subsidiaries of US multinationals and shipped back here for consumption in the domestic market. The global supply chains are really important here. And the vast majority of those global supply chains are anchored by US headquartered companies. Look, iPhones are assembled by a subsidiary in China of a Taiwanese company and sent back here. That th- this phone, Lisa, in front of you right now, He's where to was my it? Samsung where Galaxy. was it? Act- okay, Korean company. This iPhone I'm now <laughs> holding. Seriously, this thing has wound its way around the globe half a dozen times before it appeared at the AT and T store in Montague Street in Brooklyn. So when we talk about things that America buys from China and how it's so much more than China buys from America. You know, we need to be careful. Uh, Dan, can I just uh, ask you in maybe 20 seconds, isn't it interesting that we are now even talking about bilateral trade negotiations when maybe two years ago we were talking about multilateral trade negotiations and this is turning out to be normal? Part of the doctrine if you can even call it that, of Team Trump, is that it's a big conspiracy and everyone everywhere is out to get the US because we're so noble, okay? If the US negotiates with a wide variety of parties simultaneously, the US doesn't have the same leverage as if it engages in one-on-one negotiations. That's part of the foundational idea. Again, I don't want to glorify it with any sort of intellectual scaffolding, but you get the picture. Thank you very much. Dan Moss, economics editor, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, talking about US-China trade conversations, confrontations, and denials, but not really denials.
right now, I want to shift uh, gears a bit and go to Aaron Brown. He's former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. You wrote a column that really caught my attention uh, this month, where you were talking about buying and holding the market through index funds and the pitfalls that can ensue. Can you just give us a sense of what you were talking about, what the general thesis is, uh, was for this column? Um, sure. Uh, buying and holding the market is clearly the dominant strategy for most uh, uh, retail investors. It's a solid, low-cost, tax-efficient, well-diversified way to get your stock exposure. But it's not so obvious how to do it. Uh, the usual way people do it is by an S&P 500 index fund, which is a perfectly good idea. It's low-cost. It's the traditional way. It's worked well for many decades. But there's no particular reason to do it. And and it kind of looks odd in a number of ways. You're overweighting uh, tech companies, financial companies, um, um, healthcare companies. You're really missing out on a lot of sectors. You've got 21% of your investment in just 10 companies. Um, and there's a lot of reason to think about moving to more diversified versions of it. For example, an equally weighted a kind of fund that puts uh, the same amount of dollars in each of the 500 S&P funds. Uh, there are other other uh, schemes people use as well. Before we, hold on a second, Aaron. Before you sure. go on to the other schemes, I, I just want to drill into some of the points that you made because they're really interesting to me. In part, for example, when people get back their dividends uh, or other kinds of payments, um, it just gets funneled into stocks that are, by nature, the most expensive. Yes, and and the most expensive, which can mean the best in some cases, but also can mean the most overvalued. Uh, there are a lot of neglected stocks that are very good. Uh, uh, you know, near the bottom of the S and P, the last say two hundred stocks in the S and P five hundred. Uh, there are some bad stocks in there as well. I mean, when you do an index fund, the agree to take the good with the bad because you're going for average. But do you want the average of the best, you know, the highest price 10 companies, or do you want the average of the 500 biggest companies? Uh, Aaron, I'm wondering if you could just give people an example uh, so that we understand that there is a difference between indexes. Because when you say buying the market, that makes sense. But then you drill down one step and you go, all right, so what really is the market? And I think your point about when you own the S&P 500 in an index fund, the top, whatever it is, 10 holdings, 15 holdings, and that's like 20% of the entire fund. So you're not really invested in the S&P 500 companies in an equal way. You are really lopsided, as you just described, by buying companies like Apple, Microsoft, Berkshire Hathaway, Johnson Johnson, uh, Intel, Chevron, and so on. Exactly, and 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 those are very good companies. And and you know, I'm not telling anyone that's a bad investment to do it. Um, it's not as diversified as it could be. And and those companies have similarities. They they they're obviously they're all big companies for one thing. Uh, they tend to have high valuation ratios, so you're not getting a lot of assets. You're not getting a lot of earnings for your dollar. You go lower down in the S and P 500, and you can find a lot more uh, value stocks, um, um, which which you know, many people like and which have historically outperformed. But I want to be very careful here. Some people 
uh, go for a waiting scheme because it's giving them some particular investment thesis. And, and you go too far in that direction, you're back to asset management again, active management, and you're paying 40, 50, 60 basis points. I'm only talking about waiting schemes that can be done for 20 basis points or so, very inexpensive. Uh, S&P 500 you can get for four or five basis points if you do it with market weights. But you can get very similar, uh, you know, you get the same stocks weighted differently. You pay a little bit more, you pay 10 to 20 basis points. Um, but you do get more diversification. You do get more of the broad economy. Can you give us a sense, Aaron, of just how much better some of these funds that you prefer have performed? Well, okay, I don't like to use that as a reason. Um, it is true that equal weight S&P 500 has outperformed the uh, market cap weight by about 2.2% over the last 20 years. It's won uh, 13 of the last 21 years. But I don't think you should buy it on that basis. I think you should say, look, there, there's no strong reason to believe it's going to outperform or underperform in the long run. We're probably going to be about the same. I'm just getting more diversification. I'm getting the average return, but I'm getting the average return on a much broader base of companies. And therefore, uh, I, in some sense, I think you're reducing your risk. Uh, I think it could easily be true that it underperforms over the next 10 years. We don't really know. Uh, but it is. it strikes me as a more solid investment. And you could also just go out and buy an equal dollar amount of all the stocks in the S&P 500. If you have an awful lot of money, yes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Aaron Brown, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we'll have to have you back. Uh, you have a really broad range from uh, some of these uh, interesting strategies to also cryptocurrencies. So Aaron Brown, thank you so much for being with us. It's a fascinating column. The title is Buying and Holding the Market Has Many Pitfalls. Aaron he's also, Brown, I just mentioned he's also the author of a great book called The Poker Face of Wall Street. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.